special guest named Corinne Jones, soon to be Dr. Jones. Soon, yes. Soon to be. She is actually finishing up her PhD and has submitted her dissertation for review by the committee just a few days ago. And she's now here in sunny Florida from Wisconsin-Madison, where they had seven inches of snow last week. We did. We probably had seven inches of rain last week. Okay. So we're And people were complaining probably more than <laughs> exactly. those in Wisconsin about the snow. Exactly. So, but my tomatoes did really well. Very nice. Yeah. So why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah. So as Ines has said, I'm Corinne Jones from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and uh, a lot of my research background has been using high-resolution manometry in the pharynx to measure pressures during swallowing, um, but I also spend a lot of my time during my PhD as a dancer and yeah. a dance teacher, um, sort of take me out of that realm. And another fun fact about myself is I have a penetration pattern, so um, <laughs> really, I do, at least when, when there's a manometry catheter in my okay. pharynx. I have a penetration pattern. I have not been fluoroed without the catheter. Well, guess what? You are here this weekend for the normal swallowing workshop Mm -hmm. that starts tomorrow. And as part of that workshop on Saturday, all the SLPs will get to fluoro themselves and get to see if they're part of the aspirators, penetrators, or even deep penetrator group, right? Or or none of the above, above. right? We're not going to do anything to somebody. Yes. So uh, (laughs) that's clinical experience. I do. I did my CF in between my master's and my PhD Mm -hmm. um, in the at the University of Wisconsin Hospital and clinics. um, But I was doing that part time while I was being uh, Dr. Tim McCullough's lab manager. Nice. And Dr. Tim McCullough is chair of Otolaryngology. Yes. University of Wisconsin. Great. So, I think we can start now. So, the first thing I'd like to do is, uh, you mentioned before that this is a nice uh, continuance from the previous podcast, which was about wreaking havoc and the idea of weakness and its overuse and the idea of fatigue. And hopefully people get the idea that measuring pressures is one way to understand force generation, correct? Correct. Um, It's not the only way, but it's one way to measure it. And so we know that, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, manometry is a way to measure pressure. If you do IOP, the IOP bulb is a manometer. And uh, so what we're going to be talking about is primarily pressure is not in the oral cavity, but but in the pharynx. Um, so the first thing I think we probably need to talk about is what do we know about pressure in the pharynx and up the UES? Mm -hmm. So we like to describe swallowing as a pressure driven event. So, you know, as we all know, liquid doesn't just magically glide down our throat. When we swallow, we have to actively contract many different musculature within the the pharynx uh, and the oral cavity as well as the esophagus. And... There are a lot of different types of pressures that we can generate with different goals. So we have what we you know, normally think of when we think swallowing pressures, we think driving pressures. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to push the bolus back with my oral tongue and then I'm going to squeeze my pharynx <laughs> and retract my tongue base. And so that's driving the bolus forward, that's what we think. We also have the upper esophageal sphincter, which is a sphincter muscle. So its purpose at rest is to you know, close off, separate off the esophagus from the upper airway and the pharynx. So one, we don't get air into our esophagus as we're resting, and we don't also get um, gastric contents into the pharynx. 
but then when we swallow, the UES um, opens up, so it, we think that happens in three different ways. The cricopharynx, or cricopharyngeous muscle relaxes. The uh, hyolaryngeal um, complex moves up and forward in the throat, which physically um, stretches the, the UES, and then also there's pressures within the bullet itself, which can, um, from within, stretch open the, that sphincter region. Um, so we kind of think that maybe uh, both a valving and a driving pressure. So it valves open uh, to let the bolus pass through and to create that uh, area of subatmospheric pressure, which helps pull the bolus down. Um, but then it also helps drive the tail of the bolus because the UES actually contracts mm -hmm. at the tail of the bolus, and then as the the UES itself lowers down in the pharynx, it helps drive the bolus and, and keep the bolus in there. Mm -hmm. So would you say, I don't have as much experience working with um, the objective measures of swallowing pressures, but this is a rather new concept, not a new concept, a new um, tool that's used to measure swallowing pressure in swallowing. And I have two thoughts. One is that Maybe from a historical perspective, did the idea of using pharyngeal manometry sort of birth from its use in the esophagus, because that's more typically seen in esophageal studies to measure esophageal pressures. And also, I feel like clinically, a lot of what we have observed about, quote, swallowing pressure has been by looking at the bolus. So mm -hmm. looking at residue, that's the consequence of reduced pressure would be residue, right? So um, maybe you can talk a little bit about where the idea of using manometry and swallowing evaluation sort of came from and what the need was. Yeah, so you were right. From my understanding, I'm not an esophageal manometry Historian. expert, but <laughs> um, it did derive a lot from uh, looking at esophageal motility and measuring pressures from the peristaltic waves mm -hmm. in the esophagus and um, then de deciding, you know, what was the cause of what people may have been seeing on mm -hmm. a lower GI fluoroscopy, or not lower GI, a, a, just a fluoroscopy of the esophagus. Um, but I'm actually not as familiar with how ex the progression came to the pharynx, mm -hmm. but it would, I would imagine it was just a sort of a, a logical thinking like, oh, well, we can measure these quantitative pressures in the esophagus and let's just see what's happening in the pharynx. But a lot of the what we call conventional manometry systems, both in the esophagus and the pharynx, were had fewer sensors than mm -hmm. what we have in high-resolution manometry and those sensors were unidirectional, so only measuring pressure from one direction. And they were, uh, there's a considerable amount of space between the sensors. And it was more space in the esophagus just because it's a larger area. Right. Um, but then there was, you know, between three and five centimeters uh, space between sensors in the and the pharynx. So just so people are following, we're talking about measuring pressures with a catheter that if you think of a long piece of spaghetti, it's about that in width, and you push it just like fees, you put it through the nasal through your, uh, nasal cavity down and have them swallow some water and they hopefully swallow it into their esophagus. 
And what Corinne is saying is that there was a time where it wasn't as feasible for pharyngeal pressures because in that spaghetti, you'll see little dash lines, if you will, and they represent the sensors that can um, give you information about pressure. But the sensors in that re region were so far apart that you only got a few data points. And we know there's quite a bit happening in that little short area of your pharynx. Um, and so uh, what they've done is they've updated the sensors so they're far closer together and there are many more of them. Right. And those have been some important technological advances that have allowed us to understand pressures during swallow better than when we were just sort of adopting a tool that was really meant for the esophagus. Is that fair? Yes. And additionally, there were some other, the type of sensor itself had changed. So a lot of, in a lot of the early esophageal manometry studies, there was a water perfuse system. So it would inject water into the esophagus and then measure the changes of pressure in that water. Mm -hmm. But you can't inject water into someone's pharynx continuously because they'll drown. Yeah. Right. So um, they moved from a more um, uh, water-infused sensors to what we called solid-state sensors. Um, so just measuring the contact pressures um, against the sensor. I'm not a physics expert. That's so okay. <laughs> no, exactly and guess what? If works. a physics expert is listening to this, then we're winning, and they need to be yes. on the next podcast. Yes. So <laughs> just true. come back here and tell us all the things we said wrong. Yeah. Right. So I want to jump on something... Um, uh, Alicia's second point, which is the idea of using residue to get an idea of pressure. And I'm not sure what your opinions are, but I'm sure you both have them. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we're all ready to share them. <laughs> I know. So. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, um, is residue a good way to understand pressures in the pharynx and the UES? And here's why I ask. On one hand, people will say, oh, they were weak, so they didn't have the ability to create the pressure, right? But um, in your experience, uh, is, is range of motion, which is the ability to make two things meet, mm -hmm. um, necessarily the same thing as the pressure that people think that they're getting at when they say weakness? Right. So there's actually a study exactly on that. Um, by Molly Kanigi, who's a speech pathologist at Wisconsin. I'm not an author on this paper, so I don't have that conflict of interest. Um, but she looked through a database, they have a clinical database of patients from their clinic who had a video fluoroscopy within a certain time window of a clinical high-resolution manometry study. And so they compared a clinician judgment on presence or absence of molecular stasis, um, adequate or inadequate contact of the base of tongue against the posterior pharyngeal wall, and then they had maximum pressures in the tongue base region from a high-resolution manometry study. Mm -hmm. um, they so just so, you're, so I'm understanding, you're saying this was video manometry, so, or was it just manometry? It was, so it was a manometry separate from a video fluoroscopy okay. study. Okay, so the person swallowed under more than one circumstance. One, during video fluoroscopy, a clinician made clinical a, study. a regular clinical study, yep. and then that person followed up with clinical manometry, clinical manometry yeah. to determine what kind of pressures they have, mm -hmm. and the boluses were matched. If there was um, a bolus? So it wasn't matched bolus to bolus. So okay. during, so it was, they just looked at clinical data. So it was a secondary analysis. Um, so it was a retrospective study. So they didn't, you know, go forward with a protocol saying, I want to do these swallows okay. during fluoro, these swallows during manometry. But they okay. just wanted to sort of compare 
more of a global function. Okay. So okay. in the manometry data, they only looked at liquid swallows. Okay. But then the video fluoroscopy data, they took the worst score of, you know, presence or absence of stasis in the molecular, presence or absence of contact to the tongue base to the posterior pharyngeal wall. Okay. And just, they separated out the two groups. So are, is there a difference in pressure in the tongue base between people with and without residue in the molecula? Mm -hmm. No. Hmm. There is no difference in maximum pressure in the tongue base region. Then they asked, is there a difference between pressure in the tongue base region of patients with and without adequate contact? And there was. So patients who had adequate contact to the posterior, uh, the base of tongue to the posterior pharyngeal wall had higher maximum pressures in the tongue base. Okay, that makes sense because that. it's contact with the actual catheter that gives right. you the measure. Right. The only thing that we don't know is the relationship of where the bolus was relative to that contact, mm -hmm. right? So a exactly. lot of people, and this is such a weird concept for people to really get, is when I ask my students or other clinicians, when that contact happens, where should the bolus be? Should it be above or below that contact? And they always say above. Really? They always say above. And it's just this weird thing. It's like you have to first get the bolus below it and then squeeze behind it. The mm -hmm. purpose of these pressures, first is to throw the bolus, just get the bolus in the, in the hole, if you will, right? And then once it's there, it can't fall down cleanly and nicely on its own. You have to guide it down. So the pharyngeal pressures, according to several studies, are mostly to cleanly push the tail of the bolus through. Gravity's gonna assist, and pharyngeal shortening, meaning the pharynx rises up to get, as does the UES, mm -hmm. to get closer to the head of the bolus, opens around it, and the tail is being squeezed down by the pharynx. So that concept that the bolus should be below it might be the reason they have the stasis. It's just that that first propulsion of the bolus into the pharynx was not coordinated, and it didn't all get in, so when it did contact the pharynx, some of it was above it, and some of it was below it, and sort of just like spread it across right. the back of the yeah. pharynx. So in this study, they were saying that it wasn't necessarily, the amount of pressure wasn't correlated with the amount of residue. So like higher pressures didn't mean lower residue or vice versa. Yeah, so it was a binary residue, no okay, residue. Okay, gotcha. Um, so you're saying when clinicians said there was residue in the molecula, mm -hmm. it didn't necessarily mean that person had poor pressure. Exactly. Okay. But when a clinician said that there's poor contact between the base of tongue and pharynx, that person also had poor pharyngeal pressure yeah. relative to the normal. Relative, rel relative to those patients with dysphagia sure. who had adequate contact. Sure, which is yeah. a better comparison than normal. Yeah. <laughs> right. Got it. So that's really interesting to me. Um, and that's partly because um, I think there are all these variables that we haven't been trained to consider. Um, timing is a very complicated one as is pressure mm -hmm. and so many other things like range of motion. And one thing that people think is that we have as scientists this very uh, standardized, objective, validated measure for understanding range of motion of the tongue and pharynx, and we actually don't have one. Right. It's a lot of subjective guesswork, and you have to explain and explain and explain it in a paper. So pressure, uh, pharyngeal pressures with manometry is great. Residue is great. Mm -hmm. Yes, no contact is great. But really nailing down how did it move and where did it move, you'd have to put markers on those structures like Jeff Palmer did on the posterior pharynx to see those uh, radio-opaque markers move on fluoro. But that still doesn't tell you all you need to know about range of motion. Right. Well, I think it comes back to a really important concept. As a clinician, when you're looking at a fluoro, I think 
I don't know what this derives from, whether we're trained to think in this pattern, but I feel like the decision-making in judging physiology is look for the residue first and then explain that residue, mm-hmm. right? And find the physiology versus maybe it, vice versa, right? So I think that in a lot of cases, if there's no residue, then it's like, well, nothing, nothing's wrong. Right. Pressures are fine, yeah. right? Good driving pressure on the bolus. But that's, there's not that one-to-one ratio. And you know, it's almost, it's, it's kind of tough, though. So think about the times we have to look at, we do saliva swallows or water swallows. It, you feel like something's missing. It's almost like a tennis instructor not using the ball as a way to say where, why their backhand is off. Like, if the ball right. keeps getting knocked out yep. of the boundary, then they go, what's wrong with your hand? But if it right. keeps getting in and, and your arm is off, it doesn't matter. The right. ball is hitting where it's supposed to go. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, a, it's not a, um, what's the phrase? Uh, if, if not, well, I don't know, I'm going to mess it up, but <laughs> forget it. It's Friday, just FYI. Um, but I, I guess it also leads to the next question, which is, I think what you're getting at is that, well, if there isn't any residue, do we care? If they're f- able to efficiently... If they, yeah, if they never have good pressure and they never have contact, that's a great way to look at it as well. On one hand, you can say, don't let residue drive, you know, your decision making, but on the other hand, if there's no residue... My decision is go ye therefore and eat, right? Right. Well, as long as they're safe in their swallow. You mean? Oh yeah. What if we're yeah. just talking about we're residue just talking here? About residue. Yeah. yeah. yeah then, and you know what? I might say they... go ye therefore and eat if they aspirate because right. it's not my mouth. I mean, I can make a recommendation. Mm-hmm. Right. But so I mean, that's sort of the mm-hmm. the question that we're we're after here was oh uh, I there's something else that I wanted to get at. I feel like I'm on step two of my soapbox, <laughs> and that is. Can you, is there something I'm missing where if on floral you see that somebody, let's say it's the clinician who rightfully says there's no contact between the base of the tongue and the posterior pharynx. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. And then they have residue. So they say there is probably a pressure generation issue. I have access to the tongue. I don't have access to the pharynx. And sure, I'll train some effortful swallows, but I also want some non-swallow tasks where I can get objective information about what they're doing. So they might do IOP. Mm-hmm. Now, the first thing I think is that it's not the oral tongue that's supposed to be doing this. It's the pharyngeal tongue. And unless right. they're gagging on the on the IOP because it's <laughs> you know in their molecular right. right now, what? How would IOP train that ballistic 168 millisecond? If you go based on the literature behavior mm-hmm. when they're pushing up on the hard palate is supposed to back on the posterior pharyngeal wall. What are your thoughts? Right. Well, it might be an attention thing. So if I'm thinking about pressing my tongue, I'm thinking about the act of swallowing, mm-hmm. whereas I just take a sip and I'm, you know, doing the crossword puzzle. I'm not mm-hmm. thinking about swallowing. Sure. So it might be an, an overall attention thing. Mm-hmm. And it could be sort of a, as the pressures in the tongue are one of the first physiologic events of the oral pharyngeal swallow is that it might just just sort of be energizing the system. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel, Stephanie Daniels and Maggie Lee Huggabee did a study with using conventional manometry mm-hmm. and oral pressures with the three-bulb K Pentax. system. Pentax sure. system. Mm-hmm. And they had their healthy participants do a normal saliva swallow. Or it may have been a bullet swallow, I can't remember precisely, but do a regular swallow, do an effortful swallow, and then do an effortful swallow, but concentrate on pressing the tongue to the hard palate. Okay. And those swallows pressing the tongue to the hard palate generated higher pharyngeal pressures than just uh, an uncued saliva swallow. 
Interesting. Interesting. So then you would need to be very specific about the direction of the tongue, perhaps. Do we, they, so they, so they, let me under, so you're saying they had more pressure in the pharynx, so they also had the catheter in the They also had throat. a, a three-sensor conventional manometry catheter, catheter in, in the posterior pharynx. In the posterior pharynx. And they found higher pressures in the tongue base hypopharynx area when doing an effortful swallow with an, the, um, attention on generating the tongue. And these are patients. Out. These are healthy participants. Yeah. So over, see, there we go. There, so that's always the issue. And I, hey, I'm not, I'm not knocking research. I'm one of those people who does all kinds of normal studies, but we don't know whether or not patients would actually do that. Patients for whom we know that is a problem. Yeah. Well, right? so what we're saying here is that it's, the factor is attention. The factor isn't the actual resistance training of the bulb, it's that you're, it's, we can't, we can't parse that out <laughs> right? from, from this study. We'd have to, you'd yeah. have to distract them in one group and have them do like some other cognitive task right. and just say, swallow this. And then the other group you say, look at your signal, pay attention, mm-hmm. and then really see if there is higher and less low attention, but attention's hard to measure, right? right? And the other thing is, I find that there are some patients that we've seen, Alicia, where when you make them attend to something, they're horrible at it. Oh, absolutely. You that's know, that's if you, a if way you say, to just, like, if you're playing basketball yeah. against someone who's really good, you tell them, like, oh, describe your jump shot to right. me. Like, what they don't know do what they did. Do? And so then when they start to think about it, then their performance goes down. Goes down. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because if for them, they, they learn the behavior before they actually... They learn because they're good at it. It's, I, for people who play by music by ear, and you say, hey, can you go back to that little, uh, you know, ad lib you did there and break down each note and, uh, you know, what yeah. was the time signature on that? They're going to be like, what is a time signature, first of all? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you just never mm-hmm. know what you're going to get when you make people focus on things that were automated yeah. to them before. It's true. I mean, we, when we teach the VLVC maneuver, a lot of times... The which best, is? Which the, is? The volitional laryngeal vestibule closure maneuver. Mm-hmm. So we basically train participants to close their airway as long as possible. And I have found in teaching this to a lot of patients that sometimes the best way to have them do it is just say, just make that white space go away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it's so funny when we have, especially younger clinicians come in or research assistants that come in and, and they're like, okay, what I want you to do is see <laughs> this epiglottis, this flap here, that's going to invert and these cartilages here are going to move this way. And by the time the patient goes to try to do the maneuver, they are like, all of, they don't know what they're doing. Um, so I think that that can certainly pay a factor. But anyways, we're getting off on a tangent. Right. So what I want, what I want to know um, is what is the literature pretty consistent on ways that pharyngeal pressure and then UES pressure change relative to a couple things. One is, what do we know about bolus differences? Mm-hmm. I assume that the the thicker the bolus, the greater the pressure. Is that fair? Um, it depends on which region. Okay. Um, there aren't many studies looking at, at um, consistency per se. There mm-hmm. are a few. There's some different reports on pressure generation in the pharyngeal region, so velopharynx, tongue base, hypopharynx, mesopharynx, whatever Mm -hmm. they call it in the article. Some report a greater pressure increase during those swallows, Um, but usually the the greatest difference between consistency and also volume is seen in the UES. Okay, so what you're saying is that in studies that look to see whether or not there is a 
relationship between increased viscosity or increased volume and increased pressure, it's fairly mixed. Fairly mixed, okay. except for there's a, a clear pattern across papers that the UES responds to those right. differences. And numbers. that's the case in terms of timing as well. Mm -hmm. So every study that looks at timing and, and uh, pressure drop, then we know that with greater consistency and greater volume, there tends to be more uh, less pressure and a longer opening time, and perhaps even greater amount of opening if a study actually looked at the range of opening. Mm -hmm. um, so the other question is, what about uh, maneuvers? So are there clear, is there anything that has a clear difference in maybe chin up, head down, head turn, uh, Effortful. Yeah, so there are a few things. Masako. Ooh, yeah. we said the M word. I was waiting And that's for definitely it. a pressure one, right? That's one yeah. that people try. Okay, talk so, about it. <laughs> go talk about it. it. There's a lot to unpack here. First, I'll start with the low hanging fruit. So, okay. <laughs> wait, that's, wait, until we, wait until we get off our soapbox. We'll tell you if it's low hanging or not. <laughs> um, generally, effortful swallows will result in greater pressures throughout the pharynx. Interestingly, there a lot, we see a lot of pressure differences in the velopharynx. Okay. So, that's a valving pressure because mm -hmm. I don't close my soft palate to drive the bolus down. I close mm -hmm. it to create a single chamber mm -hmm. and to prevent any nasal regurgitation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we see that respond to a lot of different tasks. So like if we turn someone all the way upside down, their nasopharynx is going to, or their, yeah, nasopharynx is going to respond and close mm -hmm. tighter. So mm -hmm. we'll see higher pressures in the velopharynx. Um, Mendelssohn, there's some differing accounts. Um, some report decreased pressures in the tongue-based region during the Mendelssohn, some report increased pressures. This would probably be because no one does the Mendelssohn in the same, the same way. way. <laughs> and they didn't actually do floor to know if they did the Mendelssohn. But on high-resolution manometry, you can see where the UES is. But what does the UES have to do with the Mendelssohn? So the Mendelssohn was... See what I mean about yeah. we'll decide if this is low-hanging <laughs> So one of the, and I can't remember exactly who speculated, but one of the speculations of the Mendelssohn was to increase the duration. I can um, tell you who speculated it, okay. but here's what I'm oh saying. Oh my god, this is like, this is my this ultimate is a soapbox. soapbox. <laughs> this is my ultimate soapbox. Okay, but the Mendelssohn itself is not training somebody to do anything to the UES. They're saying this is a consequence of doing what, which is prolonging hyolaryngeal elevation. Mm -hmm. So actually, did the studies that used the manometer during the Mendelssohn, do concurrent video fluoroscopy to confirm they were even doing the Mendelssohn, which is prolonged hyolaryngeal elevation? Um, not that I am aware of. Right. So I could see what the effortful <laughs> and yeah, what I'm saying. So if we can see so if we can see UES opening and closure on high resolution manometry, we can see um, the UES physically rise. So that may be due to hyaluronic excursion and or pharyngeal shortening. But we don't actually know if they're doing the Mendelssohn, right? Um, we can see, so we can see that UES is a high pressure, band of high pressure. But do we know so they're doing the Mendelssohn? Let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> so we can see the band of high pressures. It's red colors on high resolution manometry, oranges and reds, warm colors. We can see... Usually it rise up, so we get the high pressure zone moves up a few sensors. We see it go to blue colors, which is low pressure, so the, um, the area is um, opening, we believe. And then we see it close, mm -hmm. and we in a normal swallow, we'll see it descend. So those high mm -hmm. red pressures will descend. Sure. 
if someone is doing a Mendelssohn and we sort of believe that they can do it well, we'll see those high pressures. So the UES will close, but it'll still be in that elevated position. Then we say relax, and then we'll see it drop. So, so we, does that mean that you know that they're doing the Mendelssohn? But what is doing the wait, Mendelssohn? Wait, I want to get an answer to my question. Right, yeah, but what is doing the Mendelssohn? When you, wait, but when you said we believe you've only measured the UES during what you think is the Mendelssohn. Is that But fair? what is the Mendelssohn? The Mendelssohn is prolonged, and studies differ in terms of how long. Some studies say 1.5 seconds. Some studies say 2 seconds. It is prolonged hyolaryngeal elevation during a swallow. It does. They don't care if your larynx is closed. It doesn't have to be right, laryngeal right, vesicular closure. Right. Just prolonged elevation in concert with a swallow. Yes, yeah, so we haven't... We can see elevated, like physically elevated... UES pressures, but you don't higher, know they're doing the medicine. They could be doing an effortful. It depends on what and your goal is, though, up. right? Well, if your goal is for UES opening, no, but that's not the point. The point is they could be getting UES opening doing something else. Well, that's what I'm saying. We just so don't know what they're doing. It, right. It's and in some ways it's a little bit of a semantic thing depending on what your goal is, right? Some people do the Mendelssohn maneuver just as a means of a goal, which is to increase. UES opening. And if you state that outright, that do something that opens your UES right. longer and don't even call it Mendelssohn, I say that's perfect, right. whatever. Well, so it's sort of like what you guys were saying about the white space going away in a VLVC mm -hmm, right. or like your jump shot. Just make the ball go here and don't hit the floor until it's in there. Right. I don't care if you look like a clown in the air, do that <laughs> thing. Then don't call it a certain kind of technique. Right. But if you say the Mendelssohn and a clinician is training high laryngeal elevation, but they don't get the UES thing, then let's train the UES. Don't call it a Mendelssohn. Right. Because, I mean, if you're increasing hyolaryngeal excursion, but it's not doing anything to any other exactly. swallowing event, then do we actually care that they're doing hyolaryngeal excursion? Exactly. And can I just get on my little bit of soapbox right here about it was uh, Peter Curlis, 1992, that conducted the study on Mendelssohn maneuvers in 1ml and 10ml swallows, and then no Mendelssohn, 1ml and 10ml swallows. And since that paper, everyone's just taken off and right. said the Mendelssohn opens the UES. Right, and that was, a, if I remember correctly, a low-resolution manometry study. That's the other thing, because 1992. <laughs> so a little bit, that brings an interesting point, mm -hmm. uh, especially if we're evaluating the Mendelssohn and mm -hmm. thinking it might prolong UES opening. So with conventional manometry, since there are fewer sensors, if that high-pressure zone with pharyngeal shortening with hyaluronic excursion physically rises superiorly in the throat, you're going to have low pressures on that one sensor that was in the region at rest. Let me just so, say that so everybody gets it. So what sorry. you're saying is in conventional um, manometry, that's the one I was talking about before that doesn't have as many sensors. Mm -hmm. We always have to remember that the structures are moving relative to that catheter, and the catheter might be moving it as does, well. It does. And in healthy people, which is what the Carilla study was in, we would expect there would be pharyngeal shortening or elevation. So the UES is elevating during the swallow. And what you're saying is you are also getting a drop in pressure because on those particular sensors, it is noted the movement would show a drop differently than the high resolution manometry sensors? Right, yeah, so okay. in the fewer number of sensors, the UES high pressure zone physically moves away from that sensor. Ah, so that sensor is in the esophagus. I see. But it looks, if you just look at a pressure wave, it looks like a pressure drop. So they're at that one sensor, there's low pressure, but it's in the esophagus. But the UES is no longer there. Another anatomical structure is there. Yes. And in fact, there was lower pressure there's at low that pressure, sensor. Yep, but the, the structures you think are at that sensor aren't there. Yep. So I interestingly, understand. if we do a Mendelssohn under high resolution manometry, the UES doesn't really open that much longer. So we'll see it open and close, 
but whatever they're doing, whether or not they have increased hyaluronidal elevation at that time, they're holding the UES now closed with high Higher. pressure. See, that's what we see on floral. Location. That's all we see on floral, even with the VLBC. We see that the esophagus sometimes opens up, but the UES is quite closed and they're elevating it for a very long time. But what people do, we think, in a Mendelssohn and the VLVC maneuver is they swallow and that part is automatic mm -hmm. and then they just volitionally hold on to the other part of the swallow. They're not sort of pausing the whole swallow in air, yeah. mid-air. The tongue isn't like, the tongue is to the posterior pharyngeal wall because that's what's keeping the epiglottis down, right? If they're doing the Lorenzo vestibule closure mm -hmm. and the larynx and hyoid are up but then everything else just kind of just hangs out there and closes until they decide volitionally to drop all structures. What are sword swallowers doing then? So uh, when I was at Wisconsin, um, Joanne had some sword swallowers in their floros. And what they're doing is they're positioning their neck back and they're able to relax. They can burp, they can swallow, they can do something to just get a very, a very dull blade through, but you don't even need, I mean, it's not like their UES is so tight that a very dull blade can't go through. Like if you stuck your finger down there, the UES would open around your finger. It's not like, you know, a trap door that's metal or anything. Right. Yeah. So they're just able to slowly push it down and they make their body so that they have a straight line passageway so they don't actually damage anything. Mm -hmm. And they just gradually so push it down. would it look not that different? Probably not. Although you'll have actual contact from the sword against the yeah, catheter. Yeah, that's so true. You'll have that well, I guess it without the sword, just having them do the the whatever it is that they're doing to get. I'm sure they. Session. I'm sure they would. I don't, and I don't know. I can't say I'm sure. So <laughs> it's likely that they have learned to relax their. They don't have a cricopharyngeus secret it, that we don't know about. They may, <laughs> but don't ask them to describe it. Right. It's all automatic. It's a jump shot. It's true. It's a jump shot of They're swallowing. They're not super they <laughs> Exactly. They don't know what the hell's in their neck. They don't want to. You know, as I always say, a larynx even is. They just yeah. know they're shoving <laughs> stuff down there. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, that was a high hanging fruit. Now, what's on your high-hanging fruit in terms of maneuver? Oh. So you said oh, effortful. yes, the M-word, the Masako, the Or is the Mendelssohn the M-word now? After I think that, that conversation, maybe. <laughs> okay, talk about Masako. The Masako or the tongue hold maneuver. So my understanding is that the goal of the maneuver is to engage the posterior pharyngeal walls more because you're physically moving the tongue out of the way mm -hmm. while you're trying to swallow. It has to work harder. Has right? to work harder. Yeah. Um, we had a study, um, Dr. Michael Hammer was the first author on that, where we did pharyngeal high resolution manometry and um, some mental surface EMG as well as genoglossus intramuscular EMG. Mm -hmm. We did three tasks. We did saliva swallowing with the tongue inside the mouth. We did sort of a, a submaximal tongue hold where we just stuck the tongue out to the lower tongue or to the lower the edge of the lower lip. Yeah. This just, is where the ruler comes in. Yep. Just because in practice we know that not everyone is doing a maximal task mm -hmm. every single time if they're doing this for rehab. And then we did a maximal protrusion task. Mm -hmm. And we found no differences in pressures generated in the tongue base, mm -hmm. which is actually a good thing, which means that these people are compensating. Likely. Because they're healthy. Healthy So people, can yes. you repeat the three tasks again? I need to think about yeah. them. Saliva swallowing. Yep. Sticking the tongue out just to the level of the lower lip. Mm-hmm. Holding in between the teeth and then swallowing saliva. And then sticking the tongue out as far as possible, holding between the teeth. Okay, so two different um, extents of a masako. Mm -hmm. One that is uh, just to the, just to inside your mouth still, your lips are closed. No. Or just out. 
Just outside. Just outside. So, so your tongue is to level up your lower lip. Yeah. And then as far as you can. As far as you can. I see. And so uh, you're saying that it didn't matter. The, they still have the same pressure in that, in that region to... where it's supposedly um, being targeted. But interestingly, we hmm. did another study more recently. This was not with the Masako maneuver. It was just with normal bolus swallows. But we had a special catheter that measures pressures um, circumferentially, so mm -hmm. all around. So just to step back, uh, the typical high-resolution manometry catheters that we use, um, it's from the, Manoscan, or the uh, Medtronic company, it measures pressure circumferentially, so all around, but then it averages the signal. Mm -hmm. So we get one signal, average of all of the um, regions around that sensor. We have a special catheter that separates out pressures from different regions, which mm -hmm. is really interesting because the pharynx is asymmetrical. Right. Um, it's when, not the esophagus where there is peristalsis where you think exactly. that there are circular muscles that are, mm -hmm. yep, yeah, got it. Yeah. And the larynx is on the front, which is doing something different. Yeah. So... Um, we found that just during normal 10cc thin liquid bolus swallows, there's more pressure being generated from the posterior pharyngeal wall than from the tongue base. Mm. I'm not surprised by that at all. I mean, I, I've always thought that, that the only reason we don't give it that much love is because it's kind of invisible to right. us. Right, yeah. Right? Even though we all think tongue base retraction. Well, the driver. That, and yeah. The driver. Yeah. It's like the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> and the tongue is the driver. Oh my God, nerd fest. What did you just say about mitochondria and cell <laughs> really? right now? Really? That's like a, it's kind of a funny phrase. That I was just going to say, like the a charger meme. is the power of my phone, but okay. It's a meme <laughs> that makes fun of like the random things you learn in fifth grade science, right. which is the mitochondria is the, the powerhouse of the cell. Hmm, I guess I missed that, or maybe it's just so long ago. How old was I in fifth grade? What is? Are you eleven? Are you ten or eleven? Ten. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that was that was thirty-one years ago. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna let that one we'll slide. Let that slide. You guys yeah. saw this slide, okay? Um, so, so if that's the case, that the posterior pharynx actually generated more pressure than the base of the tongue, then what does that probably explain? Why when they were doing the masako, it actually didn't change as right. much. Right. So. It, it could mean two things. Since okay. we haven't done that particular paradigm with the catheter that separates out from the different directions, mm. it could mean so that no change between saliva swallowing and masako swallowing mm. could mean that there's the same pressure coming from both different directions. Okay. Or it could mean that there's less pressure coming from the anterior region, from the, where the tongue is, but it's being compensated by greater pressures from the posterior and lateral which pressure walls. Which is the goal of which the Which is masako. the goal of the masako. And of course, in your case, with the study that's been published by Michael Hammer, you had the circumferential sensor that just takes one average. It just takes an so average. So it can't differentiate so. anterior from posterior. So we actually don't know where compensations might have been made. Right, right. Got it. But it's an interesting next step for you guys. Yes. Absolutely. So here's my other questions. Um, age. Mm -hmm. Seems like the literature is pretty darn mixed in terms of whether people have reduced pressure with age. I'm not talking about people who have dysphagia, just healthy older adults. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And do you think it's be it's just because it is in fact a in the way that uh, you know a bolus is distinctly different, like one and ten ml are just flat out different. People age differently, mm -hmm, absolutely. so it could just be that it's there's variation. It's mm -hmm. it's a normal, real, valid variation that we're seeing, and you can't say that. But here's the other thing: it's also mixed in terms of the literature, in terms of whether or not they do have more residue. So that I, I was, that's why I was sending you that yeah, email, yeah, like, yeah. tell me about pressures, is because I was looking to see does the literature actually truly show 
that as you age, you have more residue, and it's very mixed. And the reason it's very mixed is because many studies, one, just had somebody say residue yes or no. So their methods weren't great. They didn't have an objective way to do measurement. They weren't. They didn't have any reliability to say if somebody else, if I look at that amount of the molecular and I say that's residue, somebody else would be like, that's not residue. Right. And then, right. and then the other other issues with the studies. So it could very well be that it has more to do with the studies varying, mm-hmm. and that age actually has a lot of variability. Right, and right? just normal functioning has right. a lot of variability. Okay. And is there any, finally, is there any population, patient population, that distinctly is different than normals? Like maybe, and I'm sure there's not this great big myasthenia grab study in manometry, but it just seems like a group that has significantly less ability to generate pressure mm-hmm. might be a more obvious comparison. Is there like stroke studies, ALS? Not in high-resolution manometry, just because it's so young. So the first sure. studies came out in 2010, and mm-hmm. so we've had eight years of studying. And a lot of people have taken the low-hanging fruit in a group of young, healthy people. You know, mm-hmm. does 10 cc's differ from 20 cc's? Got it. And so there haven't been great studies looking at these pressure differences. And it's sort of an individual-by-individual basis. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, the clinicians at the University of Wisconsin Voice and Swallowing Clinic use pharyngeal high-resolution manometry on a fairly regular basis on their patients. And just in my conversations with them, a lot of the times they're surprised in mm-hmm. what they see. So they usually would see a patient and do a video fluoroscopy first, and then if they have unanswered questions, they would do a pharyngeal high-resolution manometry. But then a fair amount of times, what they would expect to see, maybe low driving pressures in this region where there's residue, they see something totally different. Hmm. So they may have increased compensatory pressures potentially in the velopharynx area, or their UES is totally normal despite having, you know, a huge bar that's that's true. Looking like it's obstructive. But yeah. they're generating these low pressures. Hmm. So let me ask you two questions. So we're talking a lot about pressure. Mm-hmm. Our last podcast was a lot about weakness. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that when we're measuring pressure, are we measuring weakness? That's a a tough... (laughs) To connect the dots for me. To connect the dots, yes. So I'll just sort of turn it back to you. If someone is... Like a true scientist (laughs) about to get a PhD. (laughs) If someone is swallowing with an IOP bulb Mm -hmm. at 40... Kilopascals, which is the threshold for normal versus abnormal according to literature. Are they weak? Let's say they're swallowing at 40, but their max is 45. Right. Versus another person who's swallowing at 40, but their their max max is 80. 80. Yeah. Well, we don't know what reserve means. We have no clue what reserve means. Like, are we talking about a ghetto rigged car? Like, it can go for a long way, you know, mm-hmm. without right. some, like, windshield wiper, just whatever it is. We don't actually know what other compensations are made. Maybe it's at the jaw level, right? Maybe mm-hmm. it's just chewing longer so that, or the food is broken down more, adding liquids so that it's thinner when they do swallow. People do all kinds of things when their function mm-hmm. is a little bit... Uh, skewed lower. It's like as a short person, I already know I'm, you know, I'm going to have to do certain things to get up to the other level. So these compensations, they don't really hinder me from living, but um, I just know what they are and I do them automatically sometimes. So the pharyngeal constriction ratio 
is a tool that's used, and it's what it says about it is that it's a surrogate measure Tell what of pharyngeal strength. The pharyngeal constriction, constriction ratio, ratio is taking the difference between being totally at rest, just sitting there breathing, and you look at the area, the space within your pharynx, and then at the height of the swallow. And the relationship between, or the difference between those, the ratio, is supposed to tell you how much constriction or closure happened at that level. Mm -hmm. And you were saying, just so people know what it is. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, that's a clinical tool that people use as a surrogate, and mm -hmm. I am using my hands as quotes, <laughs> as a surrogate measure of pharyngeal strength. Um, would you say that manometry is just a more objective measure of constriction? Ooh, that's a good question. Have there been pharyngeal constriction ratio studies that correlate with manometry? Not yet. But, but you look like are, you know something the about it. are there, and we're working through <laughs> that. Ah, true scientist again. I know. Well, you but, are well-trained. Yes. <laughs> but you, you do a lot of manometry, and you mm -hmm. do a lot of objective study. What do you think about the PCR? Do you think it's useful clinically? Do you think it, it can be misleading? Um, do you think it's measured properly? <laughs> I mean, I don't... Tough. Yeah, we'd have to do a study to see oh, yeah. if people are measuring it properly, yeah. but I feel like... So there's two different sides of the coin. There's, you know, it's this way to make a quantifiable thing. I actually, I'm going to go on my soapbox here. I don't like the term objective. Mm -hmm. Ooh. Because, well, there are some things that are objective. Yeah. With, with pharyngeal pressure, say. Like a maximum pressure on one sensor, it, like it's the pressure. Mm -hmm. Like no matter how you measure it, that maximum pressure is a maximum. But with a pharyngeal constriction ratio, it depends on where you draw... Mm -hmm your box. And so you're getting a number, so it's yep. something that's quantifiable, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily objective. Sure. But don't I you like think, but wait, but wait, let me ask you this. Doesn't it all come down, that box, whatever they drew, that's that number. It is that number. Mm -hmm. That number is objective, it's just what does it represent? The same thing with the sensor. That pressure was that sensor, but where was that sensor? So I think they're both objective. You definitely, they'll both give you a number, but where we fail generally is how we interpret that number. Or the well, reliability. The I reliability, think yeah. So you can, but, but that's still, but that the number itself is still objective. They drew an area and they got a number that represents that. The sensor uh, picked up a pressure and it told you what that number mm -hmm. is. But it's, I think where we fail is sure the reliability, right? But the reliability of getting that sensor in the same spot in that same person the next swallow is right, also Right, but if I measure this pressure wave from this one person and that one swallow, mm -hmm. and I get the maximum pressure, and then yep. Alicia measures that same pressure wave from that same person, that same swallow, she's going to get the same maximum pressure. Yeah, but what if, but if I, I agree with but you. But if I draw an outline of a pharynx of this one person mm -hmm. and the one swallow doing the PCR, Alicia might draw it slightly differently. So there's that. No, I agree know. with you, but I but I think there are various the layers of objectivity. The number itself is objective. It's, that's yeah. my point. Object, it's an objective measure of. That's what you're saying. It's the measure part. How you derive yeah. the data. And, and what, but and the data itself is not me throwing out 59. That looks like a 59, right? right? That's, that's where, to me, I'm like, that is completely... Yeah, yeah. so that we do need a sort of in-between term. Yes. Between well, I don't, I don't... So in the CTDM course, I have this whole section on objective versus subjective. And for objective, I have five or six things. I don't just have, can you get a number? Is it an obvious thing like death? This person doesn't have a leg. We don't need the official leg counter to walk up to that person and say one. Yeah. So is the person that have a leg, uh, is it reliable? Is it valid? Are there norms? And all of those things can contribute to objectivity, um, but just one doesn't always work, except for like a live dead. And sometimes we mess that up. 
right? So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, you make a good point, though, in that the what we're measuring is, is what matters, and whether or not how we do that is not always as objective as we think which it is. Which goes to your point about the timing. Which is a step even beyond. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I agree with you. In our literature, I, sometimes I find myself saying objective timing. I'm like, it's so not objective. Like, I can't tell you how much reliability we do because somebody sees a gray space there and I right. see a gray space here. I mean, it's it's more like objective. safe and unsafe. It's more or less objective. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. It's just like, uh, and then uh, at Wisconsin, is Danielle Brates is in Wisconsin? Or? She was. She did her CF at Wisconsin. She's now with uh, NYU. Dr. Yeah, and yeah. so she presented that very interesting mm-hmm. study about whether or not palpation versus actual quantifiable measures of laryngeal movement versus someone looking at floor and saying... I like that you saying, said quantifiable and not objective. I, I'm afraid <laughs> to say the word. I mean, you can quantify it. We don't know if it's objective or not. Right. Right? Uh, and just the idea that palpation and looking at a floral and saying subjectively, yeah, I think that was adequate elevation, neither of them actually are the same as measuring it. Now, we don't know if measuring it itself is necessarily always done the same way Mm -hmm, but the assumption is that if I give you a number of millimeters of movement that you're going to feel that with your fingers you're going to see it on floral and we're just saying that's not the case so can I just make a plea and then we can wrap up can I make a plea for for pressures and airway protection pressures are always tied to residue and that is job is to move the balls through but the job of pressures is first and foremost in my opinion, to push the epiglottis down. Because when you have saliva swallows, you would drown in that before you even finished your day of eating. If you fasted for two days, you would probably drown on all the saliva. We'd swallow two, a liter a day of saliva, hmm. two liters of saliva, <laughs> and you never had a bolus pushed through because your epiglottis never inverted because of what? The tongue and the pharynx. Mm-hmm. That is one of their primary roles. And we always, we often don't correlate epiglottic inversion with those pressures and so I'm just curious about in your future study work whether or not you feel like that's something of interest because airway protection is pretty pretty critical for pressures yes, it's important. often and forget it airway, airway protection itself is pressure driven because right. you, you have to drive and hold the vocal folds together and make that laryngeal vestibular closure and it's not just contact but it's right. likely sure. active pressure even mm-hmm. though we haven't mm-hmm. been able to measure that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think some people might be listening going, wait, vocal fold closure requires pressure. Anything. Pressure doesn't have to right. be the Hulk smashing through. Swallowing is, is plumbing. Right. It is. Like. It's rheology, which is both mm-hmm. of fluid mm-hmm. dynamics or whatever dynamics, and these valving systems that move because of some kind of pressure. Right. So uh, I just, I, I always like to make a plea for airway protection and pressure. Thoughts? <laughs> Thoughts? Feelings? <laughs> attitudes about anything in closing? No pressure. Yeah. No pressure. Um, no but, pressure. But this has been all about pressure, so. I think for those, well, I think that those who have been listening to the past two episodes have been thinking now, about have been rethinking, looking at a swallow and seeing residue and just stamping weakness on top right. of it. I it's know. much more. Um, weakness does not residue make. Ooh, yeah. I like that. I like Are that. you from Yodaland? <laughs> <laughs> But no, I completely agree with you. Um, yes, we want people to rethink what they think they see mm-hmm. 
And the other thing is, if you think you're doing this clinic at the bedside, you actually don't know when you train effortfuls follows and you decide they're gonna you're gonna give them their worksheet and they're gonna do their <laughs> ten effortfuls. You don't actually know what they're squeezing and where. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. We have no clue. And if we're struggling with all of these tools to understand swallowing pressure, how much more right. with no quantifiable? Notice I didn't say objective. Quantifiable tools. That's true. And. And just a, an appreciation that residue may occur that has nothing to do with pressure and weakness. Mm -hmm. That maybe training and doing strengthening and doing some of the maneuvers that are thought to impact pressure that may be not. Oh my God, you brought up an important thing that I must, we have to close on this, that we can din 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 din, I promise. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, Maggie Lee Huckabee in New Zealand has this amazing study that I like to point out about sequencing. Don't you love that study? It basically mm -hmm. shows that across the catheters that are going from superior to inferior, in healthy people, you have these, and I know it's conventional, she only had a couple of sensors, mm -hmm. you have this sequence where you have peaks at different times, right? So that means that you have superior, middle, inferior constrictors. A lot of people think that you have these boom, boom, boom. But even if you think of it that way, in healthy people, you have a stripping wave to sort of like... If you have your toothpaste, I don't know, this is one of those things I like to say, you go from the end of the tube and push to the to the hole, right? You don't mash your hand in the middle of it and have it squirt in both directions. You don't just slap on it, otherwise you don't get direction of the toothpaste. So she's showing that in patients, they actually stack when they have their sensors. So these peaks aren't one, two, then three from superior, middle, and inferior. They're just one big pressure all at the same time. So basically, when you're training somebody in Effortful, you might be training maladaptive behaviors mm -hmm. because they have a sequencing problem and they were doing it at a, a lower um, amount of force. Now you've trained them to smash on, like yeah. step on. It's like, okay, if you're going to step Hulk on... Hulk smash again. Wait, wait. <laughs> no, no, it's not Hulk smash. I was going to say, if we go back to junior high and you have those toothpaste packets, you have to get your foot behind the tooth, not the toothpaste, the ketchup packets yeah. to really squirt <laughs> yes. somebody. If you, if you stomp right on it, it's going to go everywhere yeah. and it might get on you. You have to get at the end of the ketchup packet. Yeah. And that's what she's saying. These patients are smashing right on the ketchup packet mm -hmm, yeah. and they're not being trained to sequence, which is why manometry can be a great tool for training when to apply pressure relative to one, one area versus another. And so it potentially has some role in clinical biofeedback tools. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just I want to take this opportunity to, I know you made the caveat, oh, it was just conventional manometry, mm -hmm. but I was down in New Zealand and working with Maggie Lee Huckabee a little bit using high-resolution manometry, and we've actually found, and uh, Dr. Huckabee, you can reach out to me and say if anything's changed <laughs> since then, but those conventional manometers with the unidirectional sensors that were facing posteriorly actually showed a better picture of that sequencing and the separation mm. of the peaks because ah. high-resolution manometry measures circumferentially. Uh. And so it's my hypothesis, I haven't yet tested this, that is that the tongue base moves back as sort of one unit, mm -hmm. whereas we have the pharyngeal stripping wave. Mm -hmm. And since we average those pressures, ah, we sort of you lose, lose that, that information. Stripping mm. dynamic. So there is, you know, a a place in the world for unidirectional oh, conventional nice. manometry. Oh, oh, that's a nice is, little plug. Oh, she's an analog girl <laughs> in a digital world. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been great having you yes. here. Thank you. And thank you for managing my uh, rapid fire. I'm just preparing you for your defense. Thank you. Your dissertation <laughs> defense. Yes. Right. Yes. Great. Thanks for coming. Bye, bye, bye.
Shit.